Patronizing happens when a welfare state keeps providing to citizens. Partnership happens when together we decide what is it the state should do for me, what should I do for the state, and how do we all do it together. That would be the healthiest democracy one could aspire for. Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Cornell Policy Review Podcast. My name is BJ Nadig. I am one of the podcast associates here at The Review. Today, we are excited to share an interview that my co-podcast associate, Mawish Khan, had with Dr. Ramaswamy Balasubramanian. He is a professor um, here at Cornell, um, and they really dive into what it means to lead and how we lead our communities. They specifically address it through the lens of uh, government leadership, though I feel it could expand to a leader in any environment, as small as a local community group or as large as an international organization. I personally have found, you know, in academia, it can be very easy to fall into the trap of only critiquing and analyzing. We gather a lot of data to figure out the truth of what's happening in the world, and we critique our systems that are happening in the world. And maybe we theorize new ways, but we rarely have the opportunity to to put those theories into practice, um, to really take them out into the world from our academic shelters. I love this conversation because it felt so hopeful. Um, Dr. Balu and Mawish really center what does it mean to lead and how do we do that today within our society, within our world. Um, and so I really hope that you take that hopeful aspect with you um, and, and really imagine um, how you see your own role as a leader and connect with the, the discussions and advice that Dr. Balu grants us in this conversation. So with that said, let's hand it on over to Mawish and get into this conversation. Welcome to Cornell Policy Review. Today we are interviewing Dr. Ramaswamy Balasubramaniam, also known as Dr. Balu in Cornell University. He is a development scholar, author, public policy advocate, leadership trainer, known for his pioneering development work in Karnataka, India. In addition to being the founder of Swami Vivekananda Youth Movement, a development organization based in Saragur, Karnataka, he was the Frank H.T. Rhodes Professor at Cornell University, and he continues to hold academic positions in Cornell and other universities. Some of his renowned books, such as Voices from the Grassroots and I, the Citizen, are compilation of narratives and reflections of a development expert and are now globally acclaimed. He is currently the full-time member, Human Resource in the Capacity Building Commission of the Government of India. Thank you, Dr. Walu, for your time. We'll get on to the questions now. So, how do we define effective and impactful leadership? And how does this affect our perception or identification about leaders? I think um, this is a great question to begin with. Uh, thank you, Mahavish, for having me on the show and this podcast that you're doing for Connell Policy. Uh, we need to first understand what leadership actually is. Otherwise, uh, with, without that basic understanding of leadership, and I would like to bring in a counterintuitive way of looking at it. We normally equate leadership to positions of power. We see people as leaders. And uh, my 
discomfort is looking at it as leaders and I would like to present it as people exercising leadership. So I believe that everybody has opportunity to exercise leadership. Everybody has a volitional choice if they don't want to exercise leadership. So it's, it's, it's volitional. I can do it if I want to. Or I can step back and allow others who are better than me to exercise leadership in that point of time. The moment you have a construct of a leader, we sort of put the pressure that they have to be performing all the time, 24-7, and display a set of qualities which in certain contexts may be completely irrelevant and inadequate. So, and that's when they start projecting counterfeit leadership. So for me, as far as I'm concerned, uh, in, in a complex world that we're living in, leadership is about how do we uh, demonstrate resilience, adaptiveness, and ability to keep learning all the time to do what? You know, in a simple way. So to me, leadership, uh, the way in, in the in the space in which I operate and I live in, I would say it's an it's about mobilizing. It's about mobilizing oneself, you know, your own self and your abilities and your resources and of all those around you. And all this is because you want to do something. So it's an activity of mobilization to do something. And what is that you do? It's about mobilizing oneself and others around you to do something societally constructive. The biggest challenge today is today's world of, call it VUCA or BANI or whichever way we describe it, the complexity and the diversity of challenges that we have, you're never sure you're going to succeed. So for me, it's about mobilizing oneself to do something societally constructive along with others amid enormous uncertainty. And, and that is the real challenge for leadership today. And it is those who can understand this, do this, uh, who are willing to be vulnerable, will, willing to have the humility to learn all the time and willing to say that uh, you know, they're willing to be absent by being uh, sort of being present by being absent is the way I put it. And if they're willing to do that, then they are the people who are exercising leadership. And that's a leadership the world requires today. Right. So um, is effective and impactful leadership defined by innovation and transformation or by the perpetuation of popular ideas? I think uh, I would go, I would strongly subscribe to the fact that uh, it's it's about innovating and it's it's about uh, it's less to do about it's, it's I would say less to do about seen to be popularizing ideas but looking at ideas which can actually work for the betterment of society using innovation to express it using using transformational ways of mobilizing people to actually get those innovations play out in real life it's a combination of all three. But it's not about I doing it at all. And that's a big difference. It's not about I innovating. It's not about I transforming people. It's not about I ideating. It's about getting the ideas together. It's about enabling people to transform their ideas into action. It's about innovating to bring out actions which actually make a difference in people's life. So to me, it's not about me, but it's about the work at the center, the work of innovation, the work of transformation, the work of actually uh, enabling impact. Uh, which are their work of actually ensuring that our solutions are effective and carried out in a way in which it can work even without us. To me, that is real impactful leadership. Okay. So my next question would be, what are the long-term social impacts of impactful and popular leadership? I would uh, hesitate to say popular because I'm defining popularity in a world um, which is just aggrandizement. Uh, I would hesitate to call it popular, but I would use the word impactful, definitely. Uh, any leadership uh, which leaves behind societal progress, change in an institutionalized framework, which 
makes me completely irrelevant after some time if I'm exercising it and is enabled to carry on by itself the momentum that we create, uh, a leadership which um, is self-transformational as well as enable others to be self-transformed, a leadership which uh, is not pretentious, not about glorifying oneself or one's actions. Uh, this is the kind of leadership that truly, uh, I would say, is necessary and impactful. Uh, are there people like this? There are a lot of people like this. And these are the people who are uh, not 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 expressing the leadership to be celebrated or to be affirmed by society or awarded for their work or rewarded for their work, but people who genuinely get joy by the change that they leave behind. So what the world needs is this institutionalization, uh, which can uh, which is beyond individuals. So that's that's the way I would frame it. For a leader to be effective, how important is that that they are aware of grassroots realities? Well, um, any leader who decides to express his leadership or a person who wants to express leadership in an ecosystem which is operating at grassroots, especially the kind of life that I have led, it's imperative that he understands uh, the very simple thing that I can't be prescriptive. Uh, he understands that uh, co-generated listening is an extremely critical quality. He understands that he can't go with solution frameworks, but with openness to listen to the problem deeply, sensitively, and uh, as em uh, empathically as possible. He has the willingness to look at everybody around him at the grassroots as resources. Uh, he has the uh, charisma and the humility to appreciate that without mobilizing these people at the grassroots, he cannot find true solutions. And even if he were to prescribe solutions by the charismatic and uh, academic approaches that he might be exposed to, it may not last long. It may never be society's problems for the society that he's working with, but it'll end up as his solutions for society's problems, which will never get uh, sort of sustained by itself. So to me, uh, learning to operate at the grassroots uh, is a skill and an art. The skill part of it is deep listening, ability to hold conversations without judgment, the ability to sit along with people and be seen as equals and partners in progress, ability to desist from being prescriptive, ability to uh, uh, live in self-doubt and explore, have the humility to uh, appreciate the fact that he may not have all the solutions. And together with people, he may actually find solutions. And so if this is there, I think at the grassroots level, uh, uh, it will be something which is remarkably different. And uh, somebody who respects community wisdom, uh, who respects uh, the dignity of the people that is working with, and is willing to say that I did not know it, I learned it from the people. If he goes in with this attitude, magic can happen. Right. So my next question would be, how can a leader bridge divides and set forth bipartisan policies? You know, I think uh, in a world which is increasingly getting polarized, in a world where we all tend to fall in love with our own ideas, in a world where we're all so self-authorizing, we all operate at a scale and a space where we think we get our relevance and affirmation only if people subscribe to our ideas, in a world where we're falling in love with our own voices and the voices in our heads, whether it comes to religion, whether it comes to ideas, whether it comes to our own appreciation of democracy, um, it's sad. So I think in this space, getting people who are 
courageous enough to experiment, getting people who are courageous enough to be willing to appreciate the other and their point of view. So it requires a very high degree of sensitivity. So I always look at leadership from a different framework and I say that if you were to define leadership from the space in which you ask that question, I would say it's about understanding oneself. And if I get to know myself and if I get to know the mental complexity that I'm operating from, or if I can get to appreciate what drives me, and if I can see patterns of how I fall in love with defending my positions, I become more mindful, I become more appreciative of the other. And uh, at some stage, if I can say this this way, I would say leadership is about understanding oneself and the others around us and the actions that connect us to the others. And if you can look at it this way, I think we'll truly start appreciating that every person brings a value. And even if somebody disagrees with one, we'll, we'll be genuine in trying to seek out what would be his perspective. Into suspecting the motive and say, oh, he doesn't belong to my religion, so he's opposing me, or he doesn't agree to my idea, or I'm a Democrat, he's a Republican, that's why he's not accepting what I'm saying. You would actually look and say, what are the perspective the person is going to communicate to me? The other important thing is, if you stay focused on the work at the center, which is tr transforming society for its betterment or change for the better, and it's not being seen to be transforming society. If we're willing to suspend our egoistic uh, opinions of ourselves and the importance that we are attached to ourselves in doing this work and shift the focus to the work getting done. I think we can truly negotiate uh, operating in a polarized world and try to get all the voices heard, uh, try to get our opinions and views communicated without having the feeling that it should be listened to or operated from a space of acceptance. And if we can do that, uh, I think that is the beginning of change. And eventually we'll realize uh, in such a space, uh, it becomes very safe for people to participate. It becomes very safe for people can actually step back and say, I don't mind uh, conceding to the other points, a man's point of view, because the other man is also willing to listen and concede to my point of view. And it's actually doable. Um, having tried to live that kind of life for nearly four decades now, I can say that all we need is a patience to practice it. What is the relationship and role of leadership in determining and achieving the developmental goals? You know, if you look at my life's journey, Mahavish, I would say that initially I thought uh, I need to understand development from a space of uh, the science part of development. So understanding economic growth, the narratives the world is fashioned for ourselves. Then I thought maybe it's not about just understanding these principles, it is the efficiency, the managerial efficiency of implementing programs for people. And in the context in which I operated, the state and how it performed and how what kind of abilities the state had in getting its implementing missionary to execute efficiently. So when it was not efficient, I thought that, oh my God, if you can train these guys in good management, if you can give them managerial skills, and that's all you need. Then I thought, as I learned more, experienced more, I could understand from different dimensions. I realized it's it's possibly a bit of all this, but that's not alone enough. What is truly needed is a new generation of people who appreciate leadership the way I have described it and uh, start looking at it from this perspective and start operating from this dimension. So once you start doing that, then I think uh, these are the people who shape the policies of the world. These are the people who 
are willing to reframe policies and refashion narratives if they realize that they are wrong and they are willing to even try out other ways of looking at it. So to me, uh, leadership becomes critical in such a space, not, not technical competence, but leadership where you are able to appreciate the adaptiveness of challenges, leadership where you appreciate collaboration is not a slogan, but a necessity for progress, leadership which operates in the principles of partnership, equality, equity, fairness, and justice. And if you can do this, I think it is those kind of people who actually, whether they're occupying leadership in public positions, they can take their organizations, their countries, or the world even to greater heights. If not, if it becomes just I as a leader holding on to authority position, constantly struggling to retain my authority, it could be me as the president of a company or a CEO of a company to being the chief minister of a state or a president of a country. It doesn't matter what positions you're aspiring for. And uh, you know, at some point of time, people fall in love with their positions and want to retain it, forgetting why they took the position in the first place itself. If people go beyond all this, I think these are the people who shape policies which, which are humane, compassionate, and responsive to the needs of communities for whom these policies are made. Okay. So how important is the opinion of the stakeholders, predominantly the common citizens of a country, to voice their opinion for demanding good leadership outside of election cycle and what are the different ways that they can do so? See, I, I think there are fundamentally four forces in any ecosystem, especially in the, I'm talking in the space of policy, politics, and public administration. One in democracies, whether it's India or other countries, most of the other countries in the world today, whatever forms of democracies, whatever forms of maturation these democracies are at, the, the political leadership, I, I would call them the people elected by the citizens that you narrated now, the citizens of the country, or you can call them the common people of the country, uh, they are the ones who shape the narratives. They are the ones who actually create the appreciation of development and set standards for it and say that how are we going to solve it. Now, they are the ones who also believe that they are reflecting the aspirations of people because they're elected by the people, they represent them. And in, in representative democracy, that's the way it operates, whether it's the American Congress or the Indian Parliament or the Diet of Japan or any country you can take. Now, if they represent the will of the people, why do they exist? They exist to solve or enable the people's progress. So they need to frame rules for it. So they legislate. And the legislations by themselves don't result in any action. They need an instrument to act on the legislation and therefore they create institutional frameworks or institutions to deliver. But all this they always say is for the people. So it's a funny cycle where people vote people to lead them. The leaders create the rules and frame the institutions which are again occupied by other people to deliver to the people. So I think the tension or the equilibrium that these four forces create in any society shapes the way that that country or that society evolves. The political leadership is strong, enlightened, and truly representative of the people. They'll actually respond to people's needs. If they are constantly looking at how to sustain themselves in power or how to make money or if they got corrupted either intellectually or financially or in whatever way possible in today's world in which you can get corrupted, you create institutions which are subverted, captured, sometimes destroyed, and not responsive to people's will. So for me, when the narrative of citizens actually shifts to thinking of themselves, not just as people who cast votes to elect people to represent them in parliaments, 
but actually start thinking that I am authorizing the environment in which development is happening. I am authorizing the environment in which these political leaders I have elected operate. I am authorizing the environment in which they form rules and regulations driven by my needs, expression of interests, my aspirations, and my accountability demands. And to make it presentable in a transparent manner, once I start taking on the responsibility of being the authorizing environment, shifts happen. So to me, what the world is missing is this part of a movement from being an ordinary citizen who just sees himself as a recipient of goods and services from a benevolent welfare state to appreciating that I should start participating in determining the narrative of my own development, whatever it means to him or her. And when he starts authorizing this narrative, he truly becomes participatory. It, it, democracy matures from being representative now to a participatory state of democracy. And uh, that is a lot of empowerment for citizens. That's a lot of maturation of idea. That's what I would call a democracy healthy. Now, most countries around the world are so saddled with income poverty. They think addressing this for citizens and getting citizens to participate in programs related to addressing their income poverty is participation. I disagree. If you look at my book, Voices from the Grassroots Sector, I write about voice poverty. Voice poverty is much more complex, much more difficult to negotiate. So countries which empower citizens with giving them voice, several experiments around the world, including India, where it is happening today. And when citizens get empowered with this voice, they become true participants. In India, we call it, uh, the Prime Minister calls it Jan Bagidari, where the citizens participate to give, enable their own voices and to provide spaces, safe spaces for themselves in matters of the state where they can express it. Now, as we, it, it's never perfect. No country has perfected this, but is the country moving in this trajectory? Are countries uh, uh, following this trend where whether it is accountability frameworks, it's whether frameworks, simple things like Freedom of Information Act in the US or Right to Information in India, participating on committees of the state. So the platforms are not relevant to me. There are several platforms available today, but the space, the spirit, the intent, and the preparation, you now the state can create the platform, but what if citizens are not ready? What if citizens want to be dependent recipients of goods and services? Then it will not work either. So I think the process of empowerment, only enlightened political leadership can lead. And citizens who actually are enlightened, occupying this leadership position, it's a cycle. It's sort of a chicken and egg story. If you have enlightened citizens, you have enlightened leaders. If you have enlightened leaders, they can work for enlightened citizenship. So I believe creating this constant, uh, uh, you exploiting this tension where there's a movement of society in the other, the other, all the four major boxes I described now, all of them leading towards authorizing the citizen and getting him to participate, whether it is in the leadership, whether it is in creating the rules and framing them, or it is in, in institutionalizing them through executing institutions. I think that is real participation. And hopefully, as democracies around the world mature, we have increasingly more and more people. And as these people can start networking around the world, that is when global institutions will start seeing a governance standard, which is truly transcending borders. Otherwise, today, multilateral global institutions are also captured by powerful forces. But in every country's democracy matures to this level, where we see uh, the synergy that emerges from actually recognizing everybody else's strength and working on those strengths rather than criticizing the weaknesses, I think uh, it won't be participation, as simple as that. So for me, patronizing is different. 
partnership and participation is very different. Patronizing happens when a welfare state keeps providing to citizens. Partnership happens when together we decide what is it the state should do for me, what should I do for the state, and how do we all do it together? That would be the healthiest democracy one could aspire for. Right. So on a broad spectrum of current issues such as climate change, challenges with corruption and governance and war-stricken regions, how effective is the role of leadership in creating adaptive policies? I think it's all about leadership, as simple as this. Because the challenge is people in positions of power see adaptive problems as technical. And just to clarify these words, technical are problems which are standard operating procedures, which are just uh, uh, to-do lists in which we can solve. I have a flat tire, I know how to change the tire. It's got a simple to-do list. And most of the uh, technological interventions that we use today come with a manual to operate. But adaptiveness means something which calls for me to change my values, my behaviors, my practices, for me to experiment constantly, for me to reframe my thinking, to keep learning, stretches the limits of the repository of knowledge I have as far as handling problems. So it's a very complex process. And most of the world's problems today are adapting because the world is very comfortable in just trying out technical solutions for some, and that's what authority figures do, uh, just to feel confident that they've done something to solve the problem. It might be a temporary solution, but the problem recurs. So whether it's climate change, take just climate change, for instance, it calls for a deep alteration of personal behaviors. To give some small example, you know, every pair of clothing that we buy means some carbon footprint. But each of us, every change of season, we think that shopping for new clothes is a norm. Do we need it? I don't think so. Every time a new phone gets released, we think we have to upgrade our phones and buy a new one. So we are all part, driven by a consumerist economy where at a personal level, doesn't appear to be creating the climate change, but it's like you know getting stuck in a traffic jam and complaining about all the people driving around. We are also part of the drive, one of the drivers in the traffic jam who's also creating the jam by our being present there. We don't look at it that way. So I think it calls for a deep change. And it should be, and we always have this excuse in what can one man do? You know, we all, everybody else is responsible. Let them also do their share. But whether it is consuming less animal protein, whether it is uh, being less consumerist, whether it is being satisfied with what I have, it is being content with not acquiring. Uh, consumer products mindlessly, uh, whether it is not thinking twice about uh, burning fossil fuels mindlessly without patronizing public transport, small actions that we can all change. So we are all part of the larger ecosystem causing the damage. So adaptiveness means willing to actually, actually understand this, understand the need for change, doing it myself and working with everybody around me, mobilizing them to also be part of that change. So it's difficult, whether it's conflict, whether it is a struggle for peace, whether it is what we're seeing around the world today, one country wanting to invade the other or one country holding old grudges against each other from the past, something that happened tens of years ago, or if it's a simple thing of a fight with a neighbor or even a challenge of poverty that we're facing today or malnutrition, a lot of these problems are, you know, a combination of technical and adaptive. There's a set of solutions which can have a standard operating procedure of what and roll it out. But don't stop there. Don't just be satisfied with a band-aid. Try to solve the disease. And that means learning to do the hard, difficult, adaptive work. Does it take time? It does. Does it burn a lot of energy and take a lot of emotional demands from the person exercising it? Absolutely, yes. But then leadership is not easy. It is a risky business. 
It is tough. It is difficult. It demands discipline and determination. Well, that's what is so special about leadership, isn't it? Right. Absolutely. So, considering the current times, the masses, predominantly the middle class, comes out to be the main driving force in a society. Also, most of the times they're affected the most by the changing policies. So how can leadership skills be built to help emerge leaders from that particular segment? I would uh, hesitate to just give the responsibility to one segment of people just by the size of their economic power or the growing clout or the population or the intellectual abilities. I would simply say everybody has a role to play. Uh, depends on the scale, the intent, the depth or width of that role might be different for different people. But my way of looking at it is, um, it's about understanding my role, my role in society, understanding how I'm intricately connected to somebody else and other roles around me, and seeing how best to mobilize each other, including myself and my resources to solve a problem. If increasingly, if it is a middle class today, in certain particular space, fine. At least from the space of determining that I will not contribute to the, uh, to the destruction of this planet, contribute to the ecological crisis around me and trying to imitate uh, those whom I see that I want to aspire to become. The middle class aspirations are very high. From those perspectives, yes, they have an obligation to tone down their um, consumerist aspirations to make themselves more uh, mindful of the fact that if they continue to tread on that path, inequities are the only things that are going to grow. And if they were to reframe the understanding to say, it's we are a very important bridge in between. Uh, I know what should not be done because I'm seeing people who did it have caused a lot of hardship. I know what people are suffering. And therefore, if I can be a little more equitable and just and help in redistribution, I might possibly make this world a better place. Yes, from that perspective, they have a role to play, but I wouldn't just hold them accountable or responsible for that. I believe it's in everybody's interest to do their bit. So I would not categorize it as a class responsibility. I would categorize it as a human responsibility. Right. So moving on, I want to know who has agency now in this era of social media? That's a great question. I'm struggling to find an answer, Margish, you know, because... <laughs> Uh, agency, how long, for how, what kind of an impact, for how much. Sometimes I feel the people who shape the economic narratives are also able to buy the social media mind space and therefore they seem to have a lot of agency. Sometimes I feel a lot of these YouTube influencers and bloggers who are unseen, unheard of in their own spaces but suddenly find expressions and I feel social media has enabled this democratization of expression they seem to have an influence. Sometimes a 17-year-old uh, becomes a strong spokesperson for products that she's enabling the marketing of and therefore she becomes, in a sense, a negative influencer because she's promoting and encouraging consumerism. So it's so difficult to figure out. So for me, uh, I'm not even sure I have an answer to your question and I've been struggling to find it. It's all in context and in some context, it looks like Democratization of this voice is great. In some contexts, it looks like it's still capturable, still allied forces capture this space. So it's difficult to form one opinion. All I can say is it's an important toolkit available to mankind. And if we can all apply ourselves and ask ourselves, can I use this toolkit for betterment of society? That would be a better approach. 
My next question is about understanding the system and leadership. So in your opinion, who is the driver in policy making, the system or the leader? It's it's a very dicey question that you're asking, Bhavish. I think it's a chicken and egg story. Systems produce the people who possibly could make a difference in policy making. But then systems will always produce people who are aligned to the system already and who are not a threat to the system. And therefore, the system promotes itself, propagates itself. And they are not this, they're not the change makers in reality. So I think uh, creating the leadership which is uh, which understands productive dissonance, which is not afraid of creating disequilibrium with the confidence that good will come out of it, what I call productive disequilibrium are the ones who actually shape the narratives. If you look at the world and take an objective view, people who have not been threatened by the system, people who have not been cowed down by systemic pressures to just yield, uh, reconcile, and just compromise with their own way of thinking and fall in line, uh, these are people who are just the followers. But people who have the courage to stand up and say, I'm going to make a difference if it means changing the system and fighting against the tide, finally they are the ones who actually move the needle a bit. So I am more inclined to believe that people who blame the system are the excuse givers. People who say, well, I understand the system, I appreciate it, I'll take the good out of it, but I'm not going to take things lying down. I'm going to challenge the system, see where I can move the envelope a bit more and see if I can progress uh, both personally and as a, as a group, as a society, as a community to bring about the change that I think society will benefit from. Uh, they are the ones who make a difference. So to me, I would be more inclined to believe in that. Right. So, Professor, my next question would be, across the world, we are seeing a rise in the leaders with authoritarian views. What risk does this pose? I would just not call them leaders. I would call them people in positions of authority or becoming more authoritarian. It's a real threat. Uh, because they are the ones who want to defend their authority. They are the ones who defend their authoritarianism. They want to defend their ideological movings. It can it can actually, uh, it's not going to last long is also my feeling. Because in a world where uh, we are having also a generation of young people who are increasingly restless, who are not satisfied with the status quo, who are not just going to be willing followers, but are going to be people who are going to demand rational explanations for actions of these people. It at some point of time, uh, we're already seeing this sign in several other countries um, in the world today, uh, where authoritarianism is actually showing responses where uh, people are not going to be cowed down. Whereas if you look at for some great other democracies where there is space for dissent, there is space for expression of those differing voices, uh, despite the media shaping certain narratives today, it is these are the the real steam release valves that those societies have put together. So to me, it is um, those leaders who might actually be in authority but are not authoritarian, uh, who provide the space for dissent, who provide the space for disagreement, who provide the space for discussion and debate, who provide the space for listening, they would be the ones who will finally prevail. It may look like very optimistic statement of mine, but if you look at history and if you look study uh, people who have exercised extraordinary leadership and some of them are exercising leadership even today, whether it is management of COVID to uh, stimulating their own economies, to ensuring welfare for the citizens, to getting more and more people to participate in the shaping the development narratives of their nations. 
I think it is finally those who will prevail. The others, at some point of time, will fall by the wayside. Right. So my second last question would be, should billionaires be the policy drivers and is there a check on their power? You are determined to provoke me to answering this. <laughs> I think uh, in a world so loaded with inequities where several yeah. countries, one percent of the population starts controlling 99% of the wealth and coming from a ideological space of equity and justice that I come from, I think it's unfair. I think I would I would not grudge their having made their billions, but I would grudge if they don't use it for society good. I would grudge it if they don't want to enhance not sharing their wealth, but sharing the benefits of what their wealth can be applied for. If they can invest their billions in not just trying to capture uh, the policies of countries that they live in, but to actually fashion a narrative where investments on human and social capital can be made which can actually open up channels for future billionaires from societies which have never seen that. I think that is what we need. So this would be the way I would look at it. And that is the way we should appreciate it. So instead of grudging their participation in policy, I would be very worried about elite capture, which is what is the norm today. I would see how do these people uh, use that to actually capture the narrative of democratizing development itself. Okay, so Professor, my last question is about post-COVID situation. As we see that the world is foreseeing the economic strain, what are the leadership skills that should be practiced to accommodate the needs of all segments of the society? I've already explained quite a bit from the beginning. I think everything that I spoke of till now, transcending sectoral boundaries, transcending uh, scientific uh, what you call uh, abilities and qualities and intellectual boundaries and saying that I know I'm an epidemiologist, I'm a pathologist, I'm a microbiologist, I'm a sociologist, I'm a political scientist, I'm an economist, recognizing that we are just capable of acquiring competence in one space, but understanding that learning to operate from zones of incompetence is actually more rewarding in such challenging circumstances because no, no one person, institution or an individual can acquire the competence required to solve the complex problems of today's world, especially post-COVID. But if I were to have the humility and the willingness to mobilize all the different spaces and people and abilities to say that together we can actually make a difference, it is such countries which actually end up making a difference. Now, a lot of people around the world credit India for its way its COVID has been managed. And if you look at it, that's exactly what happened. All people from all sectors and all uh, spaces, from the voluntary sector, from civil society, from governments, and India is a federal government structure. So from the central government to the state governments, to local governments, from corporate sector who shifted their manufacturing uh, mandates to start making masks and other things, making medicines and vaccines, our scientific manpower, all of them coming together, but not claiming we solved the problem, but, but we all did it together. I think that kind of spirit should be applied for fighting every single challenge the world throws at us, whether it is poverty, climate change, threat to peace, human conflict. If we can start getting that collaborative mindset, that space where we're willing to accept our incompetence, work with the competence of others, willing to say that it's not my voice, but our voice that matters, willing to not say that I should be seen to be solving the problem, but wanting to say the problem needs to be solved. If it, this kind of leadership can be cultivated, grown, and this can be taught. And that's what I see as my life's mission. 
and I see a great deal of people appreciating this, trying to practice this, promote this. And in that generation, I think a new generation of leadership will emerge where it's not about being a leader, but it'll always be about exercising good leadership for the benefit of mankind. So that is what a post-COVID world is going to enable us to do. And let's hope that that's what happens. So thank you so much for all the wonderful questions you asked me, Mahavish, and providing me this opportunity to share some of my thoughts with you and your listeners. Uh, thank you, Dr. Balu, because this was an immense pleasure and honor for me to interview you and learn more about leadership. Um, I don't think um, there is ever going to be a stop to my questions and curiosity, but thank you very much for your time, for your answers, for your intellect and sharing all that you could in this limited time. Thank you very much. <laughs>